As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, selves, goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Well, this is an untitled poem. Um, we, it's come down to us on one sheet of paper, not even included in a letter to any of Hopkins' friends, which was his normal way of circulating poems. We have one piece of paper with corrections in ink and in pencil. Um, it used to be thought that this was one of his later poems, but experts in calligraphy, handwriting, have dated it to 1877, because it's the same handwriting style he had in 1877. And people have uh, been able to work out the later changes to the poem. So this is quite a bit of, um, quite a bit of technical work that the editors have, have done. Um, this is, of course, like the other poems we've been looking at, a Petrarchan sonnet, which is the favourite form of Hopkins. Very concise. And um, remember, this tradition used to be of erotic love poems. And then it was changed partly in the 17th century by George Herbert, Anglican poet, to include religious poems. Um, Wordsworth broadened it somewhat to make nature poems out of it. And Hopkins inherits from George Herbert and from Wordsworth. Now, as you would have gathered from my reading of it and any reading of it you've done beforehand, this is a very dense poem. But it's really quite remarkable. Um, it's important to know that Hopkins, of course, was a member of the Society of Jesus. As he himself says, a very prosaic religious order. There is no poetry in the Society of Jesus, he thought. Um, he became really interested while studying theology in seminary in the writings of Duns Scotus, a late medieval theologian. This was a bad move for him professionally because he was not supposed to read Duns Scotus, a Franciscan theologian. He was supposed to read Francesco Suarez, who was a Jesuit theologian. And when he came to his final examinations, which were of course conducted entirely in Latin, all he had to do to get a good grade and become a professor of theology was answer in an orthodox Jesuit manner the answers that his teachers, um, uh, the answers to the questions his teachers posed. But he didn't. He was brilliant and eccentric and thought that Scotus had better answers to the questions than Suarez. 
This was his downfall. And what do you do in England if someone fails miserably? You send them to Ireland. And that's what happened to Hopkins, where he, uh, he uh, died at the age of 46. But this is a poem in which, as I'll point out when we come to it, is very strongly influenced by Franciscan theology. And I'll point out a couple of the features of Franciscan theology, which are very, very interesting and not so well known. You might notice um, that the entire octave is one sentence. And this takes quite a bit of construing, the one sentence. But let's have a go. The only way in reading poetry is to jump in and look at each word and try to put part into whole and then do it again. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. Well, he notices that the kingfisher, when hunting, one of his favorite images of birds hunting, as it goes into the water or approaches the water in order to get a fish, the sunlight shines on its feathers and it seems to catch fire. And also he notices that the dragonfly with its long, beautiful, iridescent wings, the sunlight goes through the wings of the dragonfly and it looks as though the dragonfly is drawing fire, as though it's got fire coming out of it. If you go onto the internet, you can see many images of this, of dragonflies and of kingfishers. So he starts off with two animals, two quite different animals, and the sudden moment of effulgence that they have, which will become important as the poem goes on. So semicolon, indicating, of course, that this the next part of the sentence will be semi-related to the first part. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. I don't know if you've ever done this as a little boy in England. Growing up, I did it with my friends. You would find um, a well in the country. Uh, there was stone. And you would pick up stones of the right kind. And you would have a competition in throwing them into the side of the well to see how many times they would go ping before they actually fell into the water. And whoever got the largest number of pings won. That was the game. Simple pleasures before television. None of my students at university understand that line. They've never had such simple pleasures. Now, if you have done this, you would notice that when you throw the stone into the top of the well, it goes ping, 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 ping. The note changes as it goes down. You'll notice also he doesn't say round well. It's roundy well, which is the older form of the word and also suggests, of course, the inexactness of the circle because it's got stone, it's made of stone. So he's looking to use one of his favourite words for pitch, the pitch of the stone, the particular sound that the stone is associated with. He uses the word pitch in uh, the Wreck of the Deutschland and in his diaries and sermons uh, to indicate that which is absolutely, or 
that which is uniquely particular to each thing that is created. So each stone, as it were, has its own tone, its own ideal tone. Um, bells have their own tones, their own pitch. And also, rather adventurously, he says that all human beings in a state of grace have one particular thing which God sees. This is what Scotus calls um, uh, uh, haters, um, namely the thisness of each of us. You and I can't see it. I'm, I mispronounced that. I can see your spine. Um, um, this is Hesaitis. Uh, there we are. Um, this is not anything you or I can see in each other, only God can see it in us. So there is one particular thing that each of us does for God. One particular reason we're put into the world to do something. And this will become clear later. Like each tucked string tells, when you're playing a stringed instrument, each string has got its own particular tone. And notice that lovely image of the string is not plucked, it's tucked. The finger underneath the string produces the note. Each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Well, bells are made with a particular sound um, and bells, there were different bells used in cities and in towns to indicate different things. So, um, in the countryside in England and in France and most European countries, there were a wide, wide range of sounds of bells. Um, there was one bell to indicate that the Angelus was to be prayed, another bell that mass was to begin, a bell to indicate that someone was dying, so you could pray for that person. Another bell to indicate that he or she was dead, uh, so you could pray once again. There, was, there were bells used to invite angels to descend, which seemed to have been very efficacious. And there were bells used to disperse thunderstorms and repel demons, which is a very interesting idea. You wouldn't want to get those two things mixed up. There were also bells to tell people when tax men were coming to the village, so you could get out if you hadn't paid your, your tax. Um, in London, where Hopkins uh, lived, not very far from where I was born, there was a wide range of bells. In fact, he probably sang, as a little boy as I did, this song, which you may well know. I won't venture to sing it, but I'll play it for you. Bells of St. Clement, you owe me five farthings. Say the bells of St. Martin's, when will you pay me? Say the bells of Old Bailey, when I grow rich. Say the bells of Shoreditch, when will that be? Say the bells of Stepney, I do not know. Say the great bells of Bow and so on. We could have a rousing chorus, if you like. Um, that was the song, as I say, that uh, we were taught at school, in primary school in England. And if you're in London, 
many of you I'm, I'm sure have been to London, you know you can orient yourself in the city of London by the bells of the great churches. And that's one thing he has in mind, namely each hung bell's bow swung, when you swing the bell, it finds the tongue of the bell and the tongue of the bell makes a particular note and flings out its name, namely Shoreditch, Bow, or whatever, so you know exactly where you are. So each bell is assigned a particular note, a particular pitch, as Hopkins would say. And then he makes quite a leap and says each mortal thing, you and I, does one thing and the same. We also have a particular identity which only God sees. Deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, selves, goes itself. He creates, as Shakespeare does often enough, a verb out of a noun, out of self, selves. What is it we do? We self, according to Hopkins. We, our actions throughout life all contribute to make us a self. So, when you're, uh, when you're 30, you're more of a self, if you've been active and doing things, doing the right things, than you were at 15. You, you emerge into yourself by action, not by sitting around on the couch watching reruns of Days of Our Lives, or something like that. So it deals out, it throws out, that each of us lives indoors, within ourselves. Our selfhood, our soul, if you like, is within. But the self, the soul, doesn't just sit there passively looking out. It has to be engaged in action in the world. But what it says is myself. It speaks and spells. So this is where the Franciscan theology starts to come in, as opposed to the theology of the Society of Jesus. In the Society of Jesus, which in those days in Victorian England, as, as much earlier, was a quasi-military religious order, the soldiers of Christ. Um, the idea was that when you entered the society, you erased all traces of your individuality. Your superiors told you, as though you were a Marine, what to do. And you know what it would be like in the Marines? If, you're, if the officer tells you to do something, you do it. You don't argue. So I don't see myself in that context of jumping on the beach here. I'd like to think about it and maybe talk with some of my friends about what would be better for me to do. Well, you wouldn't last long in the Marines with that kind of attitude. And you wouldn't last five minutes in the Society of Jesus either. You had to erase all particularity of the self. Very different now with the Society of Jesus, I should say. Very different indeed. An almost opposite theology is that of the Franciscans. On the Franciscan view of things, God has created each one of us in order to illuminate one facet of the divine being. Now this is very interesting and very important, and I think it's got a great deal of truth to it. Namely, if we are in a state of grace, and only if we're in a state of grace. In being oneself, 
then one illuminates, unbeknownst to oneself, a facet of the infinite being of God. And it will come once only in world history, or the history of the cosmos. So, if I decide not to be in a state of grace, and go and do whatever I think I should be doing, then that one facet of God's being will never be illuminated in creation. What I should do is strive to be in a state of grace all the time and be myself in that state of grace. Namely, on the Franciscan way of things, which Hopkins is endorsing here, um, it would be almost sinful, almost beyond sinfulness, for me to try to imitate someone else. I would get nowhere by trying to imitate, as many people do, stars in Hollywood, or heroes, or heroines, or um, uh, prominent people in my field. All of this is just rife, sports stars and things like that. All of that would be a massive distra uh, distraction from the primary reason why I'm on the earth, according to the Franciscan theology, which is to be myself so that unbeknownst to myself, I might illumine one facet of the infinite God. And what would be terribly sad is if I don't do that, because then it diminishes God's effulgence in reality. And that means other people can't see it or have any sense of it. And it may be important for someone's salvation to see that in me or in any one of us. And for the same reason, according to the Franciscans, God's love for each of us is infinite in a state of grace because we are illuminating that tiny little facet of his being. And every facet of God is infinite. There's no finitude in God. So this works in both ways. I illuminate an aspect of God if I'm in a state of grace, and God loves me infinitely without reservation because of that. The Imago Dei in me is brightened and shines, as it were, in a very particular way. So I think this is a very beautiful and very profound uh, couple of lines. So we shouldn't think of it as selfishness, when it says, myself, it speaks and spells. Namely, the spelling of one's name, which would include for Hopkins, one's baptismal name and the name of one's patron saint. And each of us cries, what I do is me, for that I came. I entered the world with the project, as God sees it, of becoming myself in order to illuminate one facet of the divine being. So, obviously we do many things in life, but according to Hopkins and the theology he's, um, he's channeling here, we do one thing supremely well, or we can do one thing supremely well, which is often our vocation, you know, whatever that is. And our aim is to do it well, as well as we possibly can. That's the octave. 
And if you look through the octave carefully, you'll see that each of those semicolons joins together one or another profile of this uniqueness of different things, um, mortal and non-mortal. Then the sestet, always in a sonnet, you have the volta, the, the, the twist, and the, um, and the sestet, which is more reflective. He starts off by saying, astonishingly, I say more. Well, I mean, a lot has been just said. <laughs> and he's going to say more? I don't know in the, you, this is probably just taken off the internet, in the, um, in the Oxford edition, the I has a stress mark on it, as well as the more. I don't, I, when I glanced a moment ago, I don't think I saw the first stress mark. And the question comes to be then, who's the I? Well, it's obviously Hopkins as poet, since we're reading a poem, but it's Hopkins as priest also. There's a doubled sense of the I, I think. And then he has another of these astonishing lights. The just man justices. If you've got a noun, why not make it a verb? Now, the just man is the person who is in a state of grace. You can only be just, according to Catholic theology, if you are in a state of grace. And what do you do if you're in a state of grace? Well, everything you do is aiming towards justice. Even if you miss it from time to time, you're still aiming at it. Hopkins was very intense on this sort of point. He says somewhere in one of his diaries that an old washerwoman uh, crossing the road into the ditch to empty a pail of urine is a beautiful sight in the eyes of God if she is in a state of grace, which itself is a remarkable view. So there's no sense of um, a prepackaged piety or holiness involved in this. Just doing one's normal activities in life can be beautiful and just in God's eyes, according to this theology. The just man justices keeps grace, stays in a state of grace. That keeps all his goings graces. So everything one does is then done gracefully in the eyes of God because it is done in grace. You're doing what you were sent into the world to do. Acts in God's eye, this is what's important, God's eye, not one another's eye. As God sees us, God sees us what in God's eye he is. Christ. And again, this is, this is I think, a very profound theological point. What we don't want is God to look at us and see Kevin Hart or Jack Hart or Sushana Hart or anyone like that. That's the last thing in the world you want. What you want is God to look at you and see Christ. Christ having died for each of us, we are grafted into Christ. And so when God the Father looks upon us, 
It's Christ who steps in front of us so that God sees his Son and we are folded into the life of the Son. I do not live, it is Christ who lives in me, as Paul says. And when, as, as Hopkins would certainly have known, uh, when Nicholas Cusa, uh, write, he writes, uh, God's gaze is God's love. Whenever God looks, what that looking, that gaze, is not simply perception, it is a will and an affect, namely of love. So, when, if you are in a state of grace, according to Hopkins, when God gazes at us, he sees God, he sees Christ. It, that's, but only if you're in a state of grace. It reminds me somewhat of one of the early Greek fathers who said that God is a consuming fire, as we were told in Hebrews, but that we respond to it differently. If you're in a state of grace and are saved, God's fire is all warmth. But if you're not in a state of grace, you experience it as damnation and fire. But it's exactly the same. God doesn't change. For Christ plays in 10,000 places. Notice that in the state of grace, it's not regimented, which is more the Jesuit view. On the Franciscan view, being in a state of grace is a liberation. One can play being oneself. Now, play, as we all know, can have trivial forms, and it can have serious forms. I mean, anyone who's ever played a game of chess, you know what it was. You want to win. Right? I mean, for, for, the, for the half hour or an hour or two hours you're playing the game of chess, it's very intense. Try playing a game of Monopoly with your children, and you'll know how intense it is. Certainly with my children, they would burst into tears if they uh, lost Park, uh, Park Lane. So this is a serious playing as well. And in a sense, we play at being ourselves. Not in a trivial sense, but it's something we try out things and we retract. Remember that there is a form of grace, which I know Hopkins uh, treasured, called prevenient grace. The grace that comes before actual grace or habitual grace. I tell my students this, about this from time to time, that at their age as undergraduates in college, they have, um, uh, they have prevenient grace, namely they think, do I want to be a lawyer? And they can try on being a lawyer for a few weeks without incurring any, any, any sinfulness, or being a doctor, or being a professor. They can imagine this and engage in imaginative variation of the career path that they have. So they're given the grace to experience what, it, what they're going to be. And this is a very serious grace because they're then going to decide pretty soon once they graduate what they're going to do for life. And also with one's uh, marriage partner. You think, is this the person forever? And you're given prevenient grace in order to think about that. And once you make the decision, then you're given the grace to go through with it. So, um, for Christ plays in 10,000 places. Also, of course, he's thinking about actors, a play 
playing in different towns. Uh, think of the mystery plays in the Middle Ages in England, which played in all of the towns of the time and went from creation to apocalypse over a week or more. Christ plays in 10,000 places, but where in particular? Well, Christ is lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. So the places where Christ plays is in you and I, if we're in a state of grace. This is the idea that each Christian is another Christ. And we have the responsibility to act out being another Christ in our own highly limited ways. And what is it that Christ in us does? He plays to the Father. Throughout our lives, he plays to the Father. This is a reversal of the normal acting image where we have a small group of actors and a large audience. This is us with Christ in us acting, uh, playing for one person, the Father of the Trinity. Through the features of men's faces. It's in our eyes, our mouths, and in our senses that all that we do is acted out in the theatre of eternity for the Father who is the one watching and watching how we respond to the gift of the Son. So, each of, the, each of these things is emphasising that precious uniqueness that each of us has, that lack of conformity to secular norms. Uh, we're encouraged in the Franciscan uh, theology and in Hopkins not to take part in those general uh, and sometimes brutish norms, but to be ourselves as Christians and as Christians to be the person we were created to be, which is not like anyone else. As Peter, Paul and Mary used to sing, there'll never be another you. But Hopkins says it perhaps a little more memorably. Okay. How are we going for time? Okay, good. Ah, okay, we've got a bit, we've got a few more minutes. Yeah. So if there's any questions or anything you want to say? Yeah. Okay, uh, well, the theology of grace is enormous, just enormous. However, let me just say one thing, because we hear this at Mass almost every week. We're created in a state of nature, and when you take on a state of grace, that's to say, to live the sacramental life, having been brought to Christ, baptized, confirmed, and all of that, you are... Uh, you are adding something to nature, you are perfecting it, not destroying it. So what is natural in me remains in a state of grace, but it's raised to higher possibilities than I could ever do simply by myself. Now we can lose that state of grace, what are called the, um, the deadly sins, break the contract with God. You can, you can um, 
You can re-energize that contract by confession, but mortal sins break it, and then you are no longer in a state of grace. So if you, if you wake up on Wednesday morning and decide to rob your local bank and go ahead with it, you've broken the state of grace by the time you're counting the money back home. That's over. You can go to confession and retain them I mean, with appropriate contrition and attrition, not a mechanical thing, but then, you, then you're restored to grace. Um, other than that, there are venial sins, which are the little sins, which in the Roman Church at least are forgiven in part simply by attending Mass in the proper frame of mind. And if they're not, um, if they're not dealt with in this life, then there is purgatory in the next to deal with them. But if you die with mor in mortal sin, not in a state of grace, things don't look so good for you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, good question. Right. If you look at the manuscripts of Hopkins, he's often marked themselves up in elaborate ways. If you look at some of them, they look more like a page from, an, from a textbook in advanced mathematics than a poem. They're so heavily marked up. Um, and there's a lot of debate about how we should present Hopkins' poems. Um, should we put in all of the notations he used, or should we be more judicious in them? What he was trying to do was to score the poem so that the person would read it properly. So in this poem, um, right. The last line of the octave, he, what he wants us to do is read in this way, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. Emphasizing those words. You see, Hopkins deviates from standard accentual syllabic meter in English, the most common meter in English literature, and doesn't count the syllables. He counts the stresses. So he's going back to an early medieval style of writing, such as uh, in Piers Plowman. Uh, Piers Plowman starts famously in a summer season when Sufde was the sunna. There's four heavy beats in the line, and the syllables aren't counted. Similarly here, you'll find in a lot of Hopkins poems that you don't find a ten-syllable line, or even an eleven-syllable line, you will sometimes find an eight-syllable line with five stresses in it, or a sixteen-syllable line with five stresses in it. That means it's incumbent upon him to put stress marks on certain words so that people know what to emphasize. And that's called sprung rhythm. Oh, yeah. Another deviant interpretation? No, no. <laughs> this, is, this is not paradoxy. Um, but it, wait, Ty, is it? So, <laughs> as the reader of the poem, how much weight do you give to the biography of the poet if you, if you have access to 
do it. Like yeah. How much do you just take at face value what's on the page? I think the, 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 a good interpretation of a poem has a play of text and context. And it varies pretty much for each poem. Sometimes you know more about what was going on in the poet's mind than in others. We've got letters of Hopkins in where he talks about poems, so that's a help. But also, some poets, probably all poets, often don't quite know what they're saying. They've got their own ideas. There are some poets who get hung up on highly technical issues in their poems, and that's what all they see because it's been a breakthrough for them in some technical sense. And they don't notice other things going on, or they don't talk about them anyway. Hopkins, for instance, had very strange musical theories. And no musician, no musicologist really credits these theories. But he thought they were terribly important in his poems. And uh, so, You'd want to be judicious in dealing with that as a context. Other things where he, he, he says, um, I was on retreat and I was thinking this or that, and then I wrote the poem, that's much more in tune with it. Or he says, I was on a country, if you read the diaries, which are very beautiful, he talks about going down a country lane and seeing harebells or bluebells, and he draws them. He was a very talented artist as well and he meditates upon them and then sometime later you might see the poem referring back to that in some sense in a meditated digested sense yeah Yeah, I think he's talking about the whole of creation and that what we're used to is hearing a bell and knowing it's got a certain pitch and also recognizing that stones can have pitches too when they're thrown in wells and there's a kind of pitch even in the um, kingfisher when it catches the light and there's an a kind of divine effulgence of it. Like lots of English poets, he always thinks of the sun, S-U-N, as being like sun, S-O-N. And so there's a kind of illumination of the natural beauty and innate goodness of the creature. And the same with the dragonfly with its long articulated wings seeming to be utterly illuminated at the beginning as it's looking for flies on the, on the stream. So he looks at animals and then inanimate objects and then makes a leap to human beings. So we're just the same. Each of us has got a particular pitch not just inanimate objects. Yeah, Asha. You mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, for instance, there's the Acts of God song, where God's idea is five minutes. Okay. And then, uh, with this, that, you mentioned earlier uh, the Franciscan idea that, that the, the, each of these things having its, this essential quality to it, this pitch, that, um, that it is distinct and unique to that thing. According to Scotus. Right. What we can what we can perceive, according to Scotus, is the formalatus, the formal features. 
that you and I can see your formal features as it were in your character and in your way of being. You can see mine, but I can't see the ashenness of you. Only God can see that. And he will judge you for your ashenness. And so that's our sort of finality. Right. It's that, not, just not, not just the formal. No. What? Right. And the interesting thing is, we can't see that in one another, according to Scotus, which is good. So we're never in a position to judge another person. Or even in ourselves. Or even in ourselves. Right. right. But we're still encountering it. We, we encounter it. We don't, we don't Right, so if one is living in a state of grace and following the project of being oneself and doing what it is that God has created us for to illuminate one facet of his being, then in the effects of our life, people will see it. They may not see it as such, but they'll see its effects all the time. I'm sorry? That one thing may be the way a urine jar is taken out. Oh, yeah, right. By the maid. I mean, that's a beautiful right. image. That's that right. It's not simply something thrown away, but it's her, the way her character moves in that everyday kind of thing. Right, right. I wanted to ask you about see Christ, see God, the Father seeing Christ uh, in us. I mean, that could be said in a way that would be like uh, an Okay. I think the gifts that we get in baptism for Hopkins, the gifts we get in the theological gifts the, and in confirmation and so forth, all of those things are what enable us, if we act in a state of grace, to be ourselves. And so different from the Jesuit view, where the Jesuit Society of Jesus were to occlude their personal elements, their particularity. Hopkins is going the exact opposite direction and saying those things, not one is not to cultivate eccentricity for the sake of it, but one is to be oneself in order to glorify God. Sounds like he did it. Well, he did it in, it, he, he did in his own life. I mean, this is why he wasn't a success as a Jesuit. <laughs> success is not the outcome, not the aim. The aim is to be oneself. Kevin, thank you so much. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Question, how oh, yeah. much time did he spend on getting these uh, We don't know the exact did amount of time. Oh, no, no, no. He, I mean, he... he um, we don't know actually how long he took with each poem, but the impression from the um, manuscripts is they were pretty quick. Because we, you can see he's got a draft, and then he 
adds on some notes in ink and some in pencil, it's done. He didn't even recopy it. So what we're seeing oh, wow. there is... is that what I hear you saying? Just... Right. With great skill behind it. I mean... The, the lad had talent. I mean... <laughs> An inspiration, yeah. Kevin, thank you yeah. so much. Pleasure.